Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Investigates. I'm your host, April Glover. Just before Christmas, on an early Saturday morning in 1932, a young boy spotted a torn green dress nestled in some thickets in Sydney's Queen's Park. When the teenager looked a little closer, he saw something that would chill him to his core. It was the naked body of a young woman, blood pooling around her almost translucent skin. When detectives arrived, it was clear this woman had been murdered. She'd been struck from behind with a blunt object so severely, her skull was a mess of brain matter and bone. That woman's name was Iris Marriott, a sex worker, and she was one of the first victims of Australia's original serial killer. The brutal and terrifying public murders shocked the people of Sydney. Our young nation had suddenly lost its innocence. But she wasn't the first woman working as a sex worker to be assaulted, murdered and left in a Sydney park. Daisy Maud Carney had been killed with a blow to her head and found in Moore Park. Further south, Rebecca May Anderson was found in Scrub in Long Bay in 1924. And in 1929, a woman known as Vera was found in Hyde Park. It wasn't until the death of Bessie O'Connor, a 16-year-old from Redfern, that the spate of murders finally caught the public's attention. In the 20s and 30s, the word serial killer wasn't even in the police vocabulary. They had no idea how to approach a spate of homicides. The killer was on the loose and he was targeting young women, mostly sex workers. Today we're speaking to author Tanya Bretherton, who wrote The Killing Streets after 18 months of delving into case files, detective notes and evidence in the investigation into the violent killings. So who did it? Who was Sydney's Jack the Ripper? Tanya joins us now. Hello, Tanya, and welcome to Investigates. Thank you for being on the show today. Oh, thank you for having me. Of course. So as you know, over 80 long years ago in the 1930s, Sydney was gripped by a horrific spate of murders. And in your novel, The Killing Streets, you did a lot of research about the women who were killed. And it must have been quite difficult to get any information on the victims, being the early 30s. How did you come to know about these crimes and how did you research them? This is now my third true crime book um, and they're always based in Sydney. So I guess the discovery for this book occurred when I was researching other books, if that makes sense. So I really did come across a newspaper article about quite a, a sad and horrific discovery that had happened in a Sydney public park. It was a discovery of one of the murdered women. And it was actually several years ago that I came across the article. And it was one of those stories where I would think about it. Is there a book in this? And I I kind of returned to it several times back and forth over the years. 
And then in 2012, I think it was, we had the murder of Jill Ma in Melbourne and then we had the murder of Eurydice Dixon a couple of years later. And it was at that point that I sort of returned to that initial story in earnest and what I discovered was that there was more than one. That's right. And in the start of your novel, you start describing the discovery of the first body. Who was that woman? Uh, The first body was in the 20s. If we go back that far, we think she was murdered in 1921, but she wasn't discovered until 1922. And her name was Daisy. Um, But then over the course of the next 25 years, there were 10 murders that were remarkably similar. So the women were left in very public green spaces. They'd been attacked, raped, brutally killed, left for dead, naked, um, and often wearing just gloves or shoes or beads. So, yeah, it was over the course of about 25 years. That's right. When the bodies were found, I think police were quick to realise that these women were mostly sex workers and they were dismissed as what you describe in the book as lust killings. How do you think this affected the investigation and the resources they actually poured into it? Yeah, well, it was it was very telling. Many of the murders weren't solved and they weren't really properly investigated. Very different set of values around women. We, we still have a lot of judgement around mm. those occupations today, but really severe judgment. So the women were just considered immoral. And although there were some preliminary investigations that happened, they were dropped pretty quickly. So Mm. it, it really was a key part of why they weren't looked into. In the 30s, Sydney was a young city. Unlike other locations around the world, such as London or New York, Sydney was not accustomed to the bodies of young women being found scattered through our parks. If you're a true crime fanatic, the word serial killer is nothing out of the ordinary. As time went on, Australia was plagued by infamous murderers such as Ivan Milat, John Wayne Glover or David and Catherine Burney. But the person stalking and killing women in Sydney in the 20s and 30s was labelled Australia's very first serial killer. This meant the detectives had little idea how to approach the murders or even had the inkling to link the women together. All murders were horrifically brutal. Detectives with the knowledge, skills and resources we have today would probably create a composite identity of the killer. A young man, likely a family man with children, who frequently visited sex workers, owned a car and lived locally. But it was the 30s, a world away from 2020. Police were slow to respond and even the media were faster to label the murderer a serial killer. So there was a spate of murders and the women were found in ghastly similar conditions did police know that it was a serial killer that was on the loose no and there really wasn't the language for it um so this is something that's really been post 1960s and 70s so there really even wasn't a conversation about this kind of stuff there were three murders that happened in a very short period of time and that was in 1932 and that's really what most of the book is about those three murders or two murders really that happened in that year I think there was a recognition in that year because it was only within the space of eight or nine months, there really is something going on here. And I think the police and the media to some extent, I think the media almost picked up on it faster maybe than the police did. Mm. Can you tell me a bit about the women that you focus on in the book? Yeah, uh, there's two really that I think I focus on probably more than the others, simply because we had more information about them. One woman died in July, I think it was, of 1932, Hilda White, 
Um, she was an eastern suburbs woman. Her murder was incredibly brutal. She fought for her life. So she was naked, left under a fig tree, kind of twisted and mangled, um, and her arms and her fingers were, were black. And the police couldn't quite work out what was going on um, when they first discovered her. But in the park, they'd laid a lot of topsoil and it had rained. So she had clawed for her life. She'd fought for her life. And the inside of her mouth was described as mints um, because she'd been so brutally um, strangled. In the same year, a second woman died, basically across the other side of the park. So it was the same green space in the eastern suburbs. Her name was Iris. Uh, and she was left for dead in a very similar way. She, they don't think she was strangled, but she was struck on the head really violently. And then a third w- woman was discovered only a few days later. She was, she was an eastern suburbs girl, so she sort of frequented the eastern suburbs just as Hilda and Iris had. But she was discovered down at Sutherland National Park. Again, dumped in a very open green space. It must have been a horrific thing to stumble upon for the people that discovered these women. And I've read in the past that it was the third woman, I believe her name was Bessie O'Connor. Her murder was when public started to really pay attention to it. Why do you think that was? There were a number of reasons. I think it was because, one, she was the third in that year. So I think there was a recognition. We actually live in what we consider to be a developed and modern city. Why is this happening? Um, and these women are being discarded in, in our public spaces. It was also, I think, the media to an extent could harness the story of Bessie in a way that I think they didn't the other two because Iris and Hilda were, as far as we know, were both sex workers. And although Bessie also was, she was a 16-year-old girl and she was part of a very proud Redfern family So there was a lot more, I guess, agitation or awareness that there is something really going wrong here. What are we going to do about it? Do you think it's kind of part of a wider discussion about how women are treated and victim blamed once they're sorted, quote unquote, details of their past are discovered? Oh, absolutely. And I think that's why it was worthy of a book, Mm. because the double standard in the way that these cases were handled is extraordinary. So, yeah, that's what spoke to me. And I'd be interested to know if readers respond in the same way. A really fascinating part of your book is reading about how investigations were handled in the 30s. How did you do your research into that and and how do you compare that to the way investigations are actually done now? Yeah, look, we had for a couple of the cases in particular, we actually have quite a lot of material because the man that was ultimately tried uh, for both Iris and Bessie's murder, he was tried several times. So he, he was tried once for Iris's um, murder, but then he experienced three trials for Bessie's murder. So we actually have a lot of court transcripts. There were also police files and records that were kept on these things. We don't have access to those. So police actually kept meticulous notebooks. So although we, I didn't have direct access to those, those things are referred to in the context of court settings. So you actually do have layers of detail. So I spent a lot of time at the archives. All of those transcripts are held in the New South Wales archives out at Kingswood. Um, so many hours spent mm-hmm. there. In your book, you describe it as uncovering Australia's first serial murder murderer. Is that the case? Was this actually the original serial killer in Australia? Look, I, I think it was. Um, they were never described in this way. And I, I think 
it depends on who you speak to. But I think the first Australian serial killer up to this point has been considered um, someone called the mutilator. And that was later, I think it was in the 50s. I think these murders were so similar, there was something going on. Now, they didn't have the language around serial killing that we use today, but they were startlingly similar. If a murderer targeting sex workers sounds familiar, that's because these killings were strikingly similar to those committed by the infamous Jack the Ripper. To this day, we still don't know who Jack the Ripper was, but his motive was clear as day. His modus operandi was to kill and disembowel female sex workers in the cobbled streets of London. And like the Ripper, the clues in this case were plenty, but not enough to piece together the puzzle. DNA profiling wasn't even discovered until over 50 years later in 1986. So in the 1930s, their best bet was using the bloodstains found on and around the women. Not only that, police also put a large focus on witness testimonies. Without the sophisticated technology used in investigations today, police relied heavily on witness testimonies to find their suspects. Eyewitness testimonies can be fickle and all too often shockingly inaccurate. And it led police to a man who could very well have been innocent. Was the killer ever compared to Jack the Ripper? He was, actually. More by media than by any kind of statements made by police. But yeah, he was. Because sex workers were involved and the the brutal nature these these women weren't um I actually don't know that much about the Jack the Ripper murders but I understand that those women were sort of you know disemboweled and mm. really 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 uh terrible things were uh, occurred these women were murdered and raped and and then left for dead so there were some similarities were there clues if any that helped police point to their eventual suspect it was an un- <laughs> it was a strange investigation the documentation that they had access to or the what we think of these sorts of investigations today is driven very much by a forensic body of knowledge. They also, I think, tried to tap into the science of investigating these things, but it occurred in a very different way. So they didn't have DNA testing, but they did look for blood stains. So at one of the murder scenes, they gathered up blood spattered clothing that had sort of been cast aside and some leaves that were covered in blood because they they were horrific murders so there were pools of blood on the ground so they gathered up blood they could certainly test to see that it was human and they could test blood type but they couldn't link blood to specific people Mm. so there was a dimension of forensic testing and knowledge and understanding that was brought to to bear and they could fingerprint as well Mm. but a lot of it was based on witness testimony and we know how unreliable that is so in one of the investigations they had a photograph of one of the women who'd been murdered and they literally door knocked Um, have you seen this woman uh, they suspected that it was a young man that had committed it, the the crime, largely because these women had been they'd, they'd been brutally assaulted. So they expected someone young and strong who'd been able to kind of overpower and 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 beat these women. So yeah, they they literally did a door knock with not much else other than that piece of information. And yeah, we know how unreliable that can be. 
Can you tell me a bit about the man who was eventually tried for the murders? Eric Craig was really a, a very regular 1930s man living in the Depression. So he was an eastern suburbs local, which was one of the reasons why the police were interested in him. They, Because so many of the murders had happened in quite a, a small area of Sydney, a small part of Sydney, they thought it was someone local. He was a young man who was married with two very young children. He had a young wife uh, and he'd been a soldier at the barracks before being kicked out. And I think really the only reason that they took particular interest in him was one, he'd worked at the barracks and at least two of the women sort of frequented beats that the police knew were used by soldiers. So that immediately kind of put the spotlight on him. Um, And he'd also stolen a car. And another part, and I explore this kind of in detail in the book, is that a lot of the crimes they suspected were linked to sort of the love of the motor vehicle that was emerging within Sydney at the time. So not everyone drove. Mm. Eric drove, the man that was charged with two of these crimes. And vehicles allowed the murderer, it's what the police suspected, it gave an element of secrecy. So you could pick someone up, basically commit the the act within the car or killed the woman in the park but you could also transact business in a car so it allowed um, sex work to occur in a private space or somewhere away kind of away from the the public eye. What was it that made police zero in on uh, Eric Craig was it an unreliable witness testimony? Do you know what's interesting about this and and this is one of the reasons that makes me a little bit suspicious of the way the investigation occurred or whether or not they got a tip off we don't actually know we know that he fit a very vague profile he was kind of the sort of height of someone that they suspected might be capable of strong, fit, young, that kind of thing. And he was from the barracks and he'd stolen a car. That was it, really. The witness testimony that was built over the course of the investigation was really vague. It's not like they had a really... Bessie had been seen with a man with an incredibly detailed description that someone had seen the two of them together they really didn't have that was built slowly over time and he was pulled in for an interrogation for lineups many 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 witnesses that they pulled in didn't identify him so they would just do the lineup again it would fail again and they'd pick someone else it went it went on for a good couple of months before they kind of got witnesses that said yep that's definitely him yep Yep, definitely. Even though I said five or six times before it wasn't, it is. And despite the lack of evidence, he did eventually confess, didn't he? Do you think that was coerced at all? Yeah, I, I, th- I think it was. Now, I'll be interested to see what readers think because I kind of flip-flopped myself when I, I was doing the research. I don't think he killed Bessie. I absolutely don't think that. There's an argument that he did kill Iris. Iris was the the one murder that he confessed to. But he'd... We know now, I guess, that false confessions can be extracted from people. We know that. There was less understanding, I think, of that then. The belief was no one would ever confess to something that they didn't do. Why would you do that? But we had a state legislation at the time that if you 
uh, were charged, convicted of murder. It was a mandatory death sentence. Now, not everyone was put to death. You know, there were lots of situations. Most people weren't. But it, that's a, a scary thing to construct a conversation around. If you're someone who is innocent and uh, the police are saying to you, we got gotcha. you, we know you did this, you're going to get the death penalty when we take all of this overwhelming evidence that they may not have, but you don't know that, into a courtroom. So you, I think it was put to Eric Craig in a way where, look, we know you did it. We know what he, she was like as well. We know what she was like. Iris in particular had a reputation. There was a rumour that she'd bitten one guy's ear off when a, a dealing had gone bad. So I think they, they put it to Craig, look, confess, but tell us what happened. You could claim self-defence. And there's so many examples of these false confessions even today, like the Central Park Five, for example. It's really worrying, and that was the only reason why he confessed, was hours locked in a room. Yeah, absolutely, and we do. We know a lot more Mm. about bad interview technique um, and that people do say, yes, I did it just to escape the immediate pressure. Fear and terror can make people say and do a whole lot of things. After the murders of three women, Hilda White, Iris Marriott and Bessie O'Connor, police thought they had their guy, Eric Craig. Eric lived on Moore Park Road, just steps away from Centennial Park. A father of two and husband to Mary Caroline Craig, Eric worked in the Thai department of David Jones, but was at that point unemployed. There aren't any records to explain why the police believed the well-dressed 25-year-old was involved. But at some point during interrogation, Eric spontaneously confessed to killing Iris. He explained how he'd picked her up in a stolen car and taken her to Queen's Park. After telling Iris he didn't have any money to pay for her services, she got angry. They fought, and Eric bludgeoned her with a piece of wood. He told police repeatedly, I must have been mad. I killed her. But while he languished behind bars awaiting trial, the killings just kept happening. It's not an uncommon narrative. With the public pressure on the detectives to find their killer, it was a case of anyone would do. And after his confession, it was a no-brainer. In March 1933, a jury found Eric guilty of manslaughter and he was sentenced to 20 years. Days later, he was put on trial for Bessie's murder despite denying having anything to do with her death. The jury couldn't agree, and a second, then third trial was set. In June 1933, Eric was finally found guilty of Bessie's murder and sentenced to death. After his case was taken up by an anti-death penalty group, this was changed to a life sentence. When he was freed in 1957, apparently after years as a model prisoner, he was considered completely rehabilitated. While Eric was locked up, a number of other Sydney women were killed in public parks in very similar circumstances to Iris, Bessie and Hilda. It's possible another person entirely was responsible for these deaths as well as the earlier ones. But even while Eric Craig was locked up, the murders continued to happen. Did police just turn a blind eye to this or put it down to copycat killings? They really saw no connection. They, they really didn't. And 
I guess we can conjecture a lot about what the reasons for that were. There really wasn't a language or a conversation around serial killings at all at the Mm. time. Although Jack the Ripper had happened and I know that was sort of a... There was a mythology, I think, around him, but it it wasn't... It hadn't permeated the way that we, we reflect on criminal profiling. It's a public conversation now. You know, people talk about serial killers. They really didn't then. Sort of when Australia lost its innocence, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it, it was. I, I, it was one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book is that it, 1932 was such an important year for Sydney. The bridge opened. That was a huge deal. It connected the city in a way it hadn't before. The road system was expanding um, at an incredibly fast rate and the love of the motor vehicle had taken off. And it was the peak of the Depression. So a lot of people were doing it really tough, and and Eric Craig's family was among them. So did the killings eventually stop? You mentioned earlier it was 25 long years of it. Yeah, look, I actually stopped at about 1946, I think Mm -hmm. was the last case that I looked into, because it bore, you know, such close similarity to the, the ones that had occurred before. They may well have continued. I think it's one of the interesting things about the book because it makes us reflect on this language around serial killing. The the thing that occurred to me, the serial killer really is a construct that we use and it's something that we talk about it as if it's a, a horrifying thing, and it is, but it's also a construct in a way that we use to draw comfort or console ourselves. The much more horrifying idea is that every era has been defined by someone or more than one person who's capable of doing these really horrible things. Uh, That's more frightening to me than just one very, very narrow, small part of the population that's defined by this really horrible pathology. So can you tell me a bit about the trial of Eric Craig? Was he eventually convicted and of which murders? He was. um, The first crime that he was tried for was Iris's murder and he received a manslaughter. Uh, So he went away for a long time. So it's interesting that, in fact, what the police had, had sort of constructed around their interrogation of Eric, look, just tell us what happened plead self-defence and you, you, you'll get an easier ride of it. That is kind of what happened um, because there was, I think, recognition that Iris Marriott was a bit of a, a wild cat and that he'd acted in a way that had been, you know, he'd been defending himself. So he got manslaughter for that murder. For Bessie's murder, he was tried several times. So it was sort of a mistrial. Jury couldn't agree. They'd go back. He was tried again. He went round the turn three times on that one and he was eventually um, convicted of murder and he received a death sentence, which was commuted um, mm. a few months later. And yeah, he, he went to jail for a long time. It's interesting that in Iris's case, he got self-defence, but with Bessie, it was murder. Why do you think that is? Is that something to do with the public perception of both women? It was. Oh, I think it was. It was very clear that Iris was a sex worker and that was embedded in the, the discussion from the very, I think, the opening line. I'm pretty sure I mentioned it in the book. From the opening line, they talk about the immorality of the victim. With Bessie, I think the prosecution knew they could work an angle that if they kept those parts of Bessie's life that were kind of uh, 
judged to be immoral if they could kind of keep that quiet. So they dealt a lot in she was a 16-year-old who still lived with her mum in Redfern and she was trying to make a living, you know, at a time when it was really, really hard for people. But the police just kind of kept a lot of that hidden through the course of most of the trials and, and that I think it worked. That's right. She was also referred to as an aspiring swimmer and I think in one newspaper cutout I read she was described as a pretty swimming girl. Yes. So it's interesting to see the parallels right. and how they were described, each woman. Absolutely. And they and they were a really prominent Redfern family. So their dad, who had passed away at the time uh, that Bessie was killed, but all of the kids were well known. Um, they were all swimmers, divers and really proficient and, and the dad had been a medalist as well. So that assisted, I think, the police to kind of create a lot of hysteria around, we've got to get the person that did this. Quite reasonably, we do want to catch people that do horrible things like this. I just don't think it was Eric Craig, um, mm. unfortunately. Who do you think it was? I don't really don't know. Mm. Um, and what's interesting about this is that I didn't set out to write a serial killer book. I, I, I was fascinated in the fact that such brutal killings could occur in our city and so many of them could occur but then it, it became clear to me that there was a pattern so it kind of ended up being a serial killer book but I actually mm. don't know. And we still don't know do we? No and we'll never know mm. because the records, the level of dedication and the commitment to pursuing these investigations was not really what we would want Mm. in our society and it's because we judged the victims. A lot of Tanya's book looks into the way victims have long been treated in homicide cases, particularly when those women are sex workers. We see it all too often in the media. We'd like to think that things have changed since the 30s, but in reality, it hasn't changed all that much. Shockingly enough, a recent research paper has shown that one in six news articles still indicate a victim was responsible for any violence inflicted on them. Victims are needled in court and in the papers. What were you wearing? Did you ask for it? Did you put yourself in an unsafe position? We certainly have a long way to go. It's hard. I'm not certainly not an expert on modern policing, but as an observer, and what I see just like a member of the public like everyone else we are, I think we have a reason to be a little bit cynical and suspicious because the media doesn't write about these cases fairly um, and we do assume, we do still victim blame, we do. And there's a very public conversation about that. And when writing this, did you see a lot of parallels with uh, the way the media portrays certain cases? Yeah, it does. It still happens, uh, mm. you know, all the time. And look, I wish I could claim that I'm an expert in that and why it happens and what it is about the culture, our culture more broadly, mm. within police culture and also within legal cultures that allows that to continue. And personally, what is it that fascinates you in particular about true crime? I've thought a lot about that with the writing of this particular book, actually, because with each project that I undertake, it's very much about is it an arresting subject matter? So my plan was never really to write true crime, really. It, it, is it arresting subject matter? Is there a twist in the story? And what does that tell us about society? But this particular story, I, I have thought a lot about what, why I am continuing to write in this space. And 
I do think it was the seed for it was planted probably a really long time ago. And I, I grew up in Brisbane and we had a very famous case that happened when I was still a teenager. A young girl, not that much older than I was at the time, disappeared and her body's never been found and it it was a very public case and it was very much part of the conversation around how do you keep yourself safe in a city as a young woman. Um, the young woman's name was Sharon Phillips and she had been travelling home, her car broke down. It had all of those folkloric aspects of fear. She was on her own, she was travelling home, her car broke down in the day before, days before mobile phones, she walked to a public phone booth, called her boyfriend straight away for him to come and pick her up, and she was gone when he got there. He arrived a very short period of time later, and she was never seen again. And I think that stuck with me in a way. I actually think that's possibly what has driven this. And she had a very family desperate to find out what had happened to to their to their daughter and sister. And the Ipswich Road, it, it, people in Brisbane would remember it. There was a public sign put up um, that looked very much like a street sign, mm. um, built the same way. And obviously the state government probably gave permission for it to be put up and it just said Sharon Phillips. And that stayed with people and it stayed with me. And do you think that a lot of women in particular are super interested in true crime as a kind of a means of self-preservation or what not to do? I'd never thought about it that way, but maybe that's what it is because I, I think it is something that women in particular have an interest in. Whenever I give book talks, overwhelmingly it's women that are there and they they have all of the language talking about serial killers. They know all about – they know police methodology. So there's a level of interest among women that it is really strong at the moment. And it never occurred to me, but that is possibly the reason. I think it is for me a little bit. Also a bit of that morbid curiosity as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, have you got another book that you're working on or another case that you're looking I do. to do? I write little stories and big stories at the same time, if that makes sense. So I, I'm not a historian. My background is sociology. So it's history written by a sociologist. So as much as they're, each of my books are case-focused, they're always about um, the context or what it is about society at the time. What, what is this telling us about society? And I like to pick a different era for that reason. So I've done the 20s. I did that with The Suitcase Baby. Um, I did the turn of the 20th century with The Suicide Bride. I've now done the 30s and around that era. So I'm now moving to the 50s and it will be looking at the thallium poisonings that occurred in Sydney in the late 1940s and early 50s. Mm. Um, and again, agenda. There's always sort of a gender dimension to my stories. Mm. So yeah, it's around poisoning. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you'd like to pick up a copy of Tanya's book, The Killing Streets, it's available now at any good bookshop. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review and subscribe. And don't forget to tune in next week. Thanks and goodbye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.